you have to contribute in some way to company culture in a more practical way rather than just philosophical way, how would you do that beyond just emphasizing traditional metrics in engineering performance? The information that you get out of something like the Dora metrics, where it is really effective is they've already given you some good cornerstones, if you like, of how different metrics relate to each other and what are good indicators of what they like to call high-performing teams. It's a good starting point, but it's certainly not the be-all and end-all in terms of how you bring it in. We also have to be careful not to just adhere to a set of metrics because someone else says those metrics are good. I see a lot of conversations where people with experience of managers bringing in the door of metrics and saying, this is the yardstick. You have got to beat that metric or that metric's always got to be heading in the right direction. From my point of view, what I'm more interested in is the conversations that we get out of building these metrics because you have to define how you're going to get this data right within any software company. You have to define what lead time means to you, what change failure rate means to you. And I think you get incredible value by having those conversations. It's going to be a cross-cutting exercise, right? It's going to go across teams. So it brings people together to have those conversations. There's more to engineering culture than Dora metrics. I spoke with Tim Wheeler about this very idea. He is Director of Engineering Excellence at Squared Up. Our conversation unfolded the need to use Dora metrics more effectively so that teams can navigate around traps that are all too common. We also spoke about engineering happiness, the risks of a productivity at all costs mindset, and more. You have to listen to this episode if your work has anything to do with engineering culture. I'm Ash Patel, and this is the SRE Path Podcast. Tim, it's great to have you on talking about a topic that is not directly SRE, but is super relevant to the work that they do. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So excited to talk about it a bit more. I'll cut the mystery and I'll tell the audience what this actually is that we're talking about. It's developer experience and it's something that you're passionate about. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about my role at Squared Up of Director of Engineering Excellence. And it's the kind of job title that makes people go, huh? It all comes from things I've been doing and passionate about for quite a long time now. And that is, as you mentioned, developer experience. And for me, really, I boil that down to culture, you know, the culture of what you're doing within an engineering department and how you can really get the best out of people, out of the opportunities that are there. Before we move on, I'd like to congratulate you on becoming Director of Engineering Excellence at Squared Up. Thank you. For people who don't know what Squared Up is, it's an observability dashboard company, but we're not going to speak about Squared Up here. We're going to talk about specifically what Tim does in building the Squared Up product with developers. Could you elaborate on your specific responsibilities and how you work to drive excellence within engineering teams. Just a quick high-level overview before we move on. Sure. If I was going to try and boil it down to one sentence, it's about getting the most out of an engineering department by focusing on efficiency, quality, and happiness, which can sometimes sound a little cheesy, but you could call it health, happiness, whatever measure you want to, or whatever label you want to put against how your engineers are feeling. If I can go into it a little bit more. What isn't on that list is productivity because while productivity, you know, have a place when you're talking about certain things and performance, it's very easy to get focused on how fast can you run 
But if you're either running so fast you're going in the wrong direction, that's no good. If you're running really fast and you're leaving just detritus behind that you're going to need to tidy up and weigh you down in the future, then that's no good either, right? So I like to focus more on things like efficiency and getting the best out of what you've got as opposed to just trying to make people work as fast as possible. You know, It's not about how many PRs are we merging, how many features are we getting out the door each week. One of my roles before getting into advocating about the SRE space was as a director of operations and that involved improving productivity, very focused on productivity. It's interesting you mentioned happiness because there's a strong correlation between happiness and productivity. Not causation, happiness didn't cause productivity, but it was definitely there alongside productivity. More recently, I've noticed that you are a proponent of Dora. You follow Dora at least. I'm actually not a huge proponent of all the Dora metrics. I am a big proponent of the State of DevOps report. So that, that, maybe that'll surprise you because I talk about Dora metrics a fair amount. But actually what I'm really interested in is the gaps in between the metrics that come out in that report because there aren't a number of good reports out there, you know, not just the Dora one, but not many that have been going as long and have such a big body of work behind them. So I'm very interested in the trends in culture. You have to contribute in some way to company culture in a more practical way rather than just philosophical way. How would you do that beyond just emphasizing traditional metrics in engineering performance? The information that you get out of something like the Dora metrics, where it is really effective is they've already given you some good cornerstones, if you like, of how different metrics relate to each other and what are good indicators of what they like to call high-performing teams. It's good information, it's a good starting point, but it's certainly not the be-all and end-all. So to kind of reverse what you're saying in terms of how you bring it in, we also have to be careful not to just adhere to a set of metrics because someone else says those metrics are good. I see a lot of conversations where people with experience of managers bringing in the door of metrics and saying, this is the yardstick, you've got to beat that metric or that metric's always got to be heading in the right direction. From my point of view, what I'm more interested in is the conversations that we get out of building these metrics because you have to define how you're going to get this data right within any software company. You have to define what lead time means to you, what change failure rate means to you. And I think you get incredible value by having those conversations. It's, it's going to be a cross-cutting exercise, right? It's going to go across teams. So it brings people together to have those conversations. So I think a huge part of the value is in building those metrics and then helping decide what they mean to you, like which are the ones that are the best indicators for you. Like for instance, the NTTR, um, so the mean time to recovery, I don't like at all. I have been converted by Courtney Nash that that is just not a useful metric. It's not one that you can really make good decisions from. Interesting. That would be confusing to a few people who are not as open to hearing new things in SRE in particular because MTTR is such an important number in, in this space. So what's the premise behind MTTR not being as useful? I haven't actually heard this, so this is new to me. So yes, like I say, credit to Courtney Nash who convinced me and I have a background in maths and statistics. So when when this when she first had this in one of her talks, I was like, no, this must be wrong. There must be statistic models that you can you can make this work with. But essentially, to make it fairly straightforward, if you look at the distribution of what you're dealing with, with a number of, of, of escalations, outages, whatever you want to call them, I think in most people's experience, if you had like a histogram 
and you said, right, this lot of things took us naught to one hours to fix, and this lot of things took us one to five, and so on, and you spread it out so you get to days, there would be everything would be on the left hand side if you look at the chart, you know, like really high numbers there, but you would have some outliers that are far out because maybe it's something that really hit at the heart of your infrastructure or your architecture, and that would take maybe days. And so your average time is going to actually mislead you because you think your average time is going to be out to the right. You see what I mean? Like somewhere past where the majority of your issues are. And so if it is, like let's say the majority of your issues, you can say you do turn around in two hours. Like that's how quickly you can get services recovered. But your average is saying that it's four to five hours. Isn't that misleading? Hasn't that sent you down the wrong path? Yeah. I'm not saying there's no metrics that you can use and there's not ways of using some kind of averages, but it's not as simple as just plotting all of the data and taking the average, which I think is the default for most people. I will always owe to people who have studied statistics formally because that was one of the things I had to force myself through in university, mainly because I had a research science degree. Statistics is kind of important to that work. So, yep. Whatever you say, uh, meantime to recovery, we'll have to reinvestigate that. And if anybody's listening and they're going, no, 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 Tim, reach out to Tim. You know, like I was converted. So I guess you could say maybe I can be converted back. But yeah, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. I will have the debate in more detail with drawings and everything. With drawings and everything. That's even better. So get ready for it, people. Well, we better keep going. Otherwise, we could keep talking about why MTTR is wrong for 20 minutes. Maybe that is a topic for another time. And you should talk it out with Sebastian. He would love to duke it out with you on that. <laughs> I suppose, Tim, we have to be more pragmatic about these kinds of things when you're working in a smaller organization that may employ a lot of people, but it's not at the scale of Meta or Google. It's not as straightforward to just hire people and just say, follow the report, do this, do what the Dora metrics tell you to do. What's your take on that? Yeah, I don't know if I would call it a trap or, or an issue that we that we have in the industry, but naturally your meta, your Google, your giant companies have these large teams of SREs, of DevOps departments, produce large reports. And you know it's great that they do share these reports, but a lot of the recommendations and the way they talk about configuring teams are not necessarily realistic. Most of us don't live in the world of uh, multi-billion dollar uh, tech companies. Some of us work for very large companies, but the IT department is not that big. Some of us just work for smaller companies. So if you don't have a team of SREs, if you don't even have a dedicated DevOps function, maybe it sits kind of ad hoc within teams, I think there is maybe a lack of information or it's hard to find information about how to practically do DevOps, do SRE work without the resources that bigger companies have. It's important to not try and copy them because Google had thousands of SREs at one point, and I'm sure it still has a sizable amount. And I did a calculation that they spend conservatively, if you consider average salaries at Google, they were spending conservatively a billion dollars a year just on salaries for SREs. So how can you take what that kind of manpower gets you and try and use the same thing in a smaller organization, right? You need to be more creative and figure out a, a way that works for your situation, your context, right? And, and that's exactly what you've been doing, trying to develop more effective teams. I mean, that is a huge number. I hadn't heard that. That's 
yeah, that's an eye-watering spend on on just one one area software development. Now you have worked on comparing how people are performing in various teams, and so when you were exploring software engineering team performance in your own teams you noticed a significant variation in workload and work in progress scores between two teams. So can you share more insights into what was behind these numbers and how these variations were impacting each team's morale and performance? Absolutely. So while a lot of the the things I talk about are kind of classes, maybe soft skills, like how people work with each other, how people are feeling about their work, trying to understand the issues people are facing, I also wanted to be able to back that up with some metrics to get an understanding. And as I'm sure you know, metrics can be a dangerous thing. Like, you know, they can be quite controversial to some people or people maybe feel like they've got a big brother aspect. But I purely wanted it to allow me to have conversations about the work teams were doing. Because if you speak to any, say, senior software engineer or manager and say, oh, well, what sort of, you know, work are you doing? And they'll go, oh, you know, usual stuff. Like, because to everyone that's living the moment, it's just normal, right? But I wanted something that I could say, oh, well, do you know this team over here deal with way more escalations? And that was an example of something I looked at. Like, we track out the number of escalations we have. And for us, an escalation is not necessarily an outage, but an escalation means it is something that warrants us downing tools and one or more people jump on it straight away. That to us is an escalation. So it's a, it's a bug of some sort. It's obviously very important. And so I compared two of the teams, or well, the example that you're referring to, I compared two of the teams, and one team had three times as many escalations to deal with on average. And what was also interesting is combined with that, I looked at user-centric work, and by that I mean things they were coding that were directly for one of our customers. We obviously do a lot of work on the software to improve it, make it more secure, You know, things that you maybe as a user wouldn't instantly know. But the team that worked on most user-centric features or tasks were also getting the most escalations. So on the one hand, a lot of the literature will tell you that, oh, if you're working on user-centric stuff, it'll make you feel great because you know that you're doing stuff for the customer. But the bit that we hadn't seen is they also felt they were incredibly under pressure to fix all these urgent issues and then not moving fast enough with the user-centric work. So it was actually almost backfiring by by having a team that were engaged and could really understand what the customer wanted and do the work, we'd actually also caused a problem for ourselves because they were also picking up all the escalations. And then that was obviously meaning that they were diverted a lot. They had their workload. They had something like, I think it's three or four times the number of tasks open as they have team members. If you know your sort of agile methodology in like Kanban, the uh, recommended whip load is the number of team members plus one. And they were dealing with several times that value. So just a lot of things that are in flight because obviously escalations come in, you drop what you're doing. So that's the thing in progress. You start on an escalation, but maybe the escalation is a mitigation. So you've mitigated it, you got rid of the escalation, but now you've got a follow-up bug and you've still got the feature you started earlier. That was a really interesting bit of information to get out of metrics that were not apparent when you could speak to either team. They didn't necessarily naturally know that they are not equal, if you know what I mean. They kind of expect everyone's living this life. Hey, it seems like you're enjoying this episode. You've already listened to 15 minutes. Can you do us a favor and share it with your friends and colleagues? It really helps us get the good word out on SRE.
it's really hard to tell until you actually get real data to back what is happening. And like you said, people are not actually looking at what's happening. And if we're going to use Kanban on here, I'm going to mention where its origins are. It's from the Toyota production system. And Kanban was pretty much about improving the system while keeping teams effective and still productive, but also very content with their work. So the workplace is called a Gemba. And essentially what you're saying is if the people inside the Gemba don't really know all the numbers around the Gemba, it's your responsibility as management to know what the Gemba is doing. And so then you can help improve that. But the other important aspect that you mentioned is that like sometimes a user-focused team may be doing way too much work. And that's a time when they should have a psychological safety, at least in my opinion, to say, hey, okay, I think we're, we're getting stretched a little here. Let's stop the work, like they say in Kanban, and let's investigate the Gemba. Let's investigate what is going on. And I think yeah, that's what yeah, you're I getting think, at, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think was it in the Toyota example, they had the sort of the red button to just stop yeah. the conveyor belt. Anyone's encouraged to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very, very lucky that with the teams I work with, we've been working with an agile methodology for quite a long time. We don't, we don't particularly subscribe rigorously to Scrum or Kanban. We tend to flex depending on what works best for the team. But we're actually at the point now, which I've never had <laughs> with any teams before, where they'll come to me and say, hey, I think we really could do with a retrospective. We, we, we would like to maybe discuss something specific or discuss an area of process. And I'm always like, that's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's great you're coming to me. I don't, <laughs> I don't have to be, as I'm sure a lot of people have had, where you have to go to a team and go, please, I think we need a retrospective. Like, and everyone's like, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's fantastic that people come to me now. It's much better to have a retrospective in that scenario than having it end up becoming an SRE's job to do an incident retrospective or yep. post-mortem. Much preferred for the developers to talk about doing retrospectives. Highly encouraged. If you're a developer listening right now, please ask your manager to do a retrospective. Your SRE's will love you for it. You mentioned the impact of tasks on team morale like housekeeping tasks and handling a high number of escalations. What kind of strategies can you employ to address these challenges? When you say housekeeping here, are we talking toil-like tasks that you have to do every time you finish a piece of work? Tasks you have to do every time you finish a piece of work? Yeah. I mean, again, having the data here is, is really useful. I'm a big proponent, unsurprisingly, of having like a, a dashboard that shows the sort of breakdown of work as, as best as you have it. And Obviously, all the metrics, I'm sure most people are in the same boat that you have to take them with a pinch of salt because data quality, like whatever your task management system is, no one's going to spend all their time grooming that data to make it perfect. But still, you can, you can broad brushstrokes, you can take, take some good information away by building these metrics. It's not too much of a problem for us currently at Squared Up, but in, in previous jobs, it really has been. And I think as unsexy as it sounds, good processes are what help you manage that because your housekeeping tasks got to get done, right? I mean, escalations will always arise. So it is more about having really solid processes that help you get through the work so that you don't end up slapping for want of a better word. Because if you're distracted by escalations and then you're not quite sure what your next priority is when you come back off the escalation or whether you should do a, a post-mortem on it or whether you should do this, then actually you just end up in this horrible churn where people are unsure and then people are debating back and forth and you can get quite a lot of tension within a team. 
having people sign up to a solid set of processes, and I'm being vague because it depends on the type of team, on what you're building, on what your company does. But yeah, having a really solid set of processes, whether they're heavily documented or whether they're just well understood because you have a mature team, that really helps. Not so much keep up team morale, but stops you losing team morale with that, like I say, with that sort of the back and forth, the debate. And you're like, okay, we had an escalation. We always go and do this afterwards. Then people know what they're doing. Do you find though with mature teams that sometimes if they're not handling processes through a documented process, yeah, of course, they've been doing it so many times, they just don't feel the need to do it. Is it still a good idea to... I feel like I've had mature teams that have been really good with what they do and they get caught out sometimes when something changes in those processes. They have to learn something new and it just throws things out of whack for them for a couple of days, weeks, usually not months, but it does reduce the rhythm in a way. Have you found that yourself with any software engineering teams? Yeah, you can definitely fall into a trap of these people are experienced, they know what they're doing. Like you say, it's a risk. I mean, you know, that's kind of one of my responsibilities, right, is to make sure I stay on my toes so that everyone else doesn't like kind of fall back on whatever the, the easiest process is or the, you know, we, we, we do that enough. You know, we don't need to do more of that. You know, like it's, it's my job to be a bit more critical and analytical and say, well, actually, you know, when we stop doing this or when we stop doing post-mortems, we're at risk of escalations happening again and having more escalations and no one's going to enjoy that. You were right, but I consider that part of my job to avoid that complacency. I suppose it's a risk that you have to manage dynamically because you don't want to cheese the mature teams off by saying, hey, you need to write everything down that you're doing and then follow that process every time you want to do it. It's just going to stifle people with fair experience. You have a solid point that your job is to make sure things are moving smoothly for everybody and that no one's falling behind. And if something new comes up, those experienced teams are right on top of it. They can improve their processes, which may not necessarily be written down. We'd love it if you can give the podcast a rating. Five stars only. Just kidding. But a five-star rating makes a huge difference to how people perceive a podcast. And it keeps us motivated to produce more episodes. If you have any other feedback, feel free to email ash at srepath.com. Because you work at a observability dashboard company, a lot of your interests would be in dashboards themselves, and I'm sure you use dashboards. Actually, no, I know you use dashboards because you created one, you shared it on LinkedIn. It was an engineering team health dashboard. So can you walk us through the key metrics you decided to include first, and we'll move on from there? Yeah, absolutely. It was actually the department health dashboard, which included what we would call health tiles from individual teams. So in essence, what we were trying to create is a way to roll up information from separate teams so that we got a combined view on one dashboard. I mean, <laughs> it's always the dream, right? People are always selling you a new tool that gives you one view that rules them all. I mean, we were trying to do a little version of that for ourselves in our engineering department without going too much into the product. That's a big part of what Squared Up believes in, in terms of the tooling, is that we use what we call a data mesh to bring data from different sources to create a dashboard. But then we want to be able to roll it up so that at different levels within a company, you get the view that you need, if that makes sense. So for me, I want engineering department dashboard. And for us, the, the big ones were really the trends on bugs and escalations, the whip load 
for us seems to be quite a telling metric in terms of linking that to the sort of efficiency and happiness of a team. By Whiplo, do you mean work in progress? Yes, we've never actually said that, did we? Yes. Whip being work in progress. And well, I'll go through the rest of the dashboard and maybe circle back on whip load. And then also we find most of our technical debt, most of our toil is in all automation tasks. So we actually pulled that out as a separate metric. I mean, that's quite unique to us, but I'm sure other companies have a similar thing. From that metric, we found that not all of the teams had a really good process for making sure they were generating automation tests for features that they'd built. And we really wanted to in terms of coverage, at least, make sure that every new feature had automation tests for it almost as soon as it was released. And so we started tracking that as a metric. So we're not saying like we're writing automation tests to cover every scenario, every different use case that would just be, you know, slow us down incredibly and probably not add that much value. But in terms of coverage to know that new code is exercised, we always wanted to make sure that that was happening. So being able to keep track of that backlog of work proved to be a really useful metric. And then as another example, going to back to the whip load, we found that we were having one team in particular were having quite a large whip load, but we couldn't really see from a data point of view why one team would have so many tasks in flight. And when we actually sat down and started to talk to the, the, the team lead and the, the product manager that were working with them, we realized that the two of them didn't agree about what, what done meant. So the product manager was like, yeah, we've finished all these tasks. Everything's fine. And the actual engineering lead is going, no, 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 there's, there's there's all these other things that we need to tick off. So just by having that dashboard and then going, oh, this is an outlier and we can't see why, we started having a conversation about it that led to that team actually kind of reinvigorating all of their processes when it came to the software development lifecycle. And it's, you know, again, I, I mentioned earlier, the building of metrics and having the conversations about metrics are often more valuable than the number that you get from it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you get metric sprawl. I'm guessing because you would know more about metric sprawl than other engineering leaders working at an observability company that you can easily get it. So how do you overcome that kind of challenge? Because everyone's keen on putting every kind of metric. Well, yes. I am a you know a bit of a maths geek. So I love my numbers. I love my data. And so I am my own worst enemy in that sense that I'm like, oh, look at all these amazing metrics like I've pulled from all this data. You know, I've grabbed Jira and GitHub and the DevOps tool and oh, I can see all this stuff. And yeah, like creating that health, that health dashboard, I think I probably at one point had 12 to 14 metrics on it and just brought wow. it down to four. Essentially, there's four types of metrics. You know, some of them replicated across teams, but there were only four metrics on them because it was just a, Double lot, wow. of, a lot of building them and then going, do you know what? doesn't do anything because that 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 is what I feel all the way to the challenge you've got to do, whether it's a, a set of metrics or like maybe like you've done a scorecard or whatever. When you finish, look at it and go, so what? what? What does this mean? You know, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this today? What am I going to do with this when I see a trend over weeks and months? And so, yeah, that's the challenge I always try and set myself is like, if I can't say what it's for, just delete it. So... A large part of what you do in terms of building these dashboards is actually having teams define their own status. I haven't come across that concept and it sounds somewhat self-deterministic. How do you make this work across different teams who value different things and work in different ways? How do you get them to define the status and actually bring it all together to build a dashboard? 
The concept is that every team will have a dashboard, which could be one metric if they can convince me that's all they need to track, but it tends to be a bunch of metrics. And generally what I find is when you chat to a team about what they want to see, I often kind of lure them in by saying, I'll build this for them. You know, you be the author, I will build you the dashboard and pull the data and calculate the metrics for you. Engineers can't help themselves, of course. You know, once there's a, a challenge and a problem to solve, then then they dive in. And then we generally do a process where we juggle a few of the metrics and we end up with their dashboard. So then my challenge to them is to say, well, what means that you're healthy? You know, what means that the team is on track and in a good place? And what should be a warning? You know, obviously we try and avoid using like successful and failure. I don't want it to be so black and white. It's more about when do we maybe need to jump into a retrospective? When do we maybe need to talk about adding more resource to the team or things like that? And to be honest, all the conversations I've had have always just been very positive and very thoughtful. The teams already know this stuff kind of intrinsically about the problems they have and what challenges they have. So we tend to just come to a very natural conclusion where we're like, oh yeah, when whip load gets over this number, that probably means like some escalations have hit us. So maybe like more than one escalation active and maybe more than this on the whip load, then we'll send a flag up to the master dashboard above it. There's no magic trick. It just tends to be lots of conversations and uh, good vibes, hopefully. Is engineering happiness part of that dashboard? Because it seems like it's an important thing to you. In short, we don't have it on the dashboard. And my, my logic there, which you know may be right, may be wrong, is that if you start putting things like happiness on a metric, then it's a kind of a weird thing. It's like seeing your, I don't know, your, your pulse or the number of hours you slept last night. It's like a, almost like a biometric suddenly being shared on a dashboard. So it felt a little bit too personal to put that up. We tend to judge happiness more by survey, so engagement surveys, and just generally in retrospectives having a health check of how the team is feeling. Because I, I know you know you were interested in how can you ever know how happy someone is, and you know in a pure metric data driven world, you can't. <laughs> That's the short answer, right? But. We're all human beings and we have these connections. We build relationships as we work together. So I think there's a lot that just by having conversations and having retrospectives and things like surveys, you can intrinsically get a good sense of engineering happiness, I think. And it's something that's important to engineers to know that their happiness is important to leadership because it's not felt like that in a lot of organizations. Like you said, it's a very rhetorical question to say, how can you really know how happy an engineer is? And you've made your point that you can do your best and it shouldn't be part of the thing that drives management, but it's something that should be in the back of your mind to ensure that you're not making your engineers unhappy because that does correlate with productivity at some level. So you've had initiatives from time to time that help you engage all of the teams. And one of the ones that you mentioned publicly was your Bug Bash initiative from July in 2023. And it seems like a fun way to engage your team and then something that typically would get pushed down the backlog. Can you remember any aspects of that event that really stood out to you? Anything ideally unexpected positive impacts? Nice surprises are always good. There's probably a couple of positive things and then, to be fair, probably a slightly negative thing worth mentioning as well that came about. So to give it a bit of context, the bug bash for us, because different people maybe define it slightly differently, the bug bash for us was the team's effectively downed tools, I mean, escalations aside, downed tools, stopped doing any feature work and put together a backlog 
or bugs that were in their area. And then we essentially gave them free reign to organize themselves, to work with the developers and testers together, pairing up, doesn't matter if you're in the same team, to tackle as many bugs as possible. To add a bit of interest, a bit of gamification to this, we built them a dashboard. So each team had their own dashboard based on the number of people they had in them. We set targets, all a bit of fun, tried to keep it as light as possible. And to add to that, we're a remote company, so, so we don't often get in the same room. We sent everyone a big jar of chewy bug sweets. And so it started. Oh, that's fun. Second challenge of can you finish the jar of sweets within the bug bash timeframe? It was very positive in the sense that people jumped on those bugs that had been annoying them. Like, you know, it was surprising how many people said, like, oh, I've been waiting to fix this for so long. And I think sometimes when management hear that, they're like, well, why didn't they just fix it? It's like, well, because they're doing all the things you ask them to do first in the order you ask them. So yeah, it was, you know, all those bugs that are maybe not a one-liner, but they're maybe like not that much bigger. So they're hours of work, but then they're hours of testing. We managed to close off a huge number of those and that was great and um, very positive. It was also during the, the British summertime where people are taking holidays. So you have that natural thing where teams are kind of slightly disjointed because people go and take two weeks off. And so it's a really good use of that time when, you know, you wouldn't be as efficient. Things get blocked because people are away. So yeah, from that side, really positive. I think the downside that we found, the lesson we learned coming out of this was that some teams weren't really ready for it. They weren't prepared. And then they actually found the sort of gamification side of it frustrating because, you know, like one team that had a bit more time had prepared their backlog. Soon as day one of the bug bash happened, someone opened up a typo and fixed it. And they're like, yeah, we're on the board. One bug. Whereas the other team <laughs> that maybe weren't so prepared took a day or two and then were like, oh, we're only just still working out how we're going to pair up and how we're going to fix the bugs. And so actually left not such a, a good vibe with them. So, we, you know, in the future, we know to give all the teams the same amount of sort of warning, give them a bit of prep time, but we look forward to doing it again. It's not something we're going to run every few months, but it was certainly a bit of fun. It's interesting you mentioned something like fixing a typo counts as a bug fix. Because that just makes me think, I don't know, it just reminds me of perverse incentives. Those are the two words that come to my mind. And okay, so you're in the space, you're interested in what DORA stands for and that it's got metrics to help improve productivity. A lot of people are concerned right now about how it can actually lead to perverse incentives in that developers are like, okay, if you just want me to speed up my production, then I'll just speed up my time to production. I'm not going to really look at the code. I'm just going to, you know, deploy. So how do you overcome that? Well, yeah, I mean, you won't catch me talking about productivity a lot. And I think a big reason for that is that people get focused on productivity. Things like one of the Dora metrics being deployment frequency can be a real misleading statistic because, yeah, give me the keys to the kingdom and let me just merge whatever I want. I can give you any deployment frequency you like. I can do it every minute. I can write I can write the script. So yeah, all metrics are open to abuse and can encourage the wrong behavior. Like with the bug bash, we would never maintain those metrics week to week across the year. They would they would send the wrong message. I come from a testing background. Everybody's yeah. used to uh, joke about, well, you know, if testers are paid on the number of bugs you find, guarantee you testers will find more bugs. That doesn't mean they find anything useful, <laughs> but they will find more. Yes. They'll find a way if, even if they're, yeah, I'm not going to go any further into this. I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing here. 
I'm going to paraphrase one of my, my favorite quotes, which I think came from the State of DevOps report, was that once you start measuring people against a metric, that metric is useless. Like once people know that that's the metric, you've kind of killed off the metric. And I think that, the, you know, that is a big factor. And that's why really you probably want a blend of metrics. That's the only kind of fair way you, you need to take a blend of metrics and apply them at a high enough level that you're not picking on individuals. I think that that would be some of the keys for me. And also don't run your business based only on metrics or your engineering department based only on metrics. That's, that's craziness. Got to speak to people as well. Yeah, I think it's a combination of, and you being someone from a statistics background, I don't know whether you agree with me on this, but it was very important in research science that you took quantitative data, but you also gave some heed to qualitative data that yeah. definitely guided decision-making in scenarios where people are involved. When you're creating a pharmaceutical product, uh, you might be able to get away with it. But when you're actually implementing a vaccination protocol, for example, it's a space that I know pretty well about, you kind of need to talk to people to know how you should guide your clinicians to do the right thing. So yeah, absolutely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Yeah, you've got to combine the quantitative data with the qualitative data. I mean, we're, we're not dealing with like, say, an engine on a car or something. It's, it's a lot more subtle than that. Absolutely. All, all I can say is I'm always grateful for people that put out content, like from people who are just trying to figure their way through things, you know. It's the reason I like to try and be visible, you know. I don't, I don't have huge amounts of time for, for social media and, um, and doing things like, like these pods, but, you know, I, I'm grateful when other people put some time and effort into it and share their information, so I try and, try and do the same myself. Appreciate having you on here, Tim. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hey, you listened all the way to the end of the episode. That's great. I hope you learned something amazing. And if you want to share what you learned, feel free to share it on LinkedIn, wherever you hang out, and be sure to follow the podcast for more episodes like this.